The available AKG 36 speaker sound system in the Cadillac Escalade provides 360 degree sound, so you hear studio sound on the road. The 2021 Cadillac Escalade never stop arriving. The in-dash OLED display in the Cadillac Escalade has 38 total diagonal inches of color display. So why do we give it a curve too? I guess you could say we like to bend the rules. The 2021 Cadillac Escalade never stop arriving. Thanks for listening to Uncle Sam's Soccer Podcast, keeping you up to date with the latest in American soccer. And don't forget to subscribe. Good day to everybody and welcome to this edition of Uncle Sam's Soccer Podcast. I'm Stephen Jodderin. Joining me is the one and only Armand Kafai. Armand, how you doing? I'm doing good, but I could be doing better <laughs> if I just wasn't doing so much work. But no, the weather is beautiful and it's really nice outside. I also could be doing better if I had another jersey from away days. I mean, just saying... Uh, <laughs> awaydaysfootball.com go there that's our sponsor type in promo code uncle sam for 15 percent off your purchase and they have really cool stuff um, including a mystery jersey which is i mean pretty cool you get a mystery jersey for 25 bucks that's our best seller so if i had one of those right now i'd be a lot more happier like i'm not like really happy but i'd be at like Crying and joy. Anyway, listeners, this episode, we have Jacksonville Armada FC owner Robert Palmer. Now, Robert has uh, been in the news of U.S. soccer with his idea of Division Zero. Yeah, and I want to clarify for listeners, it's more of an idea than it is an actual division. Yeah, so he really gets to the bottom of it and really hammers out what he wants out of Division Zero. And he also talks about the stadium plans he has with, with Armada, where they're going to be playing, kind of giving us some detail with what happened with the NASL regarding not playing this upcoming season. He gives us plenty of detail and also kind of enlightens you to, to what he wants to present in terms of Division Zero, which isn't necessarily a league, which cast it out to me. Yeah. Well, let's get to it. Joining us right now is the owner of Jacksonville Armada FC, Robert Palmer. How's it going, Robert? It's going good, man. How are you guys? We're doing good. I, You know, before we get started into, and get into the thick of things, I'm just curious to know, what got you into soccer? So are we talking soccer as a fan or soccer as an owner? Because two very, very different stories. Well, l- let's hear both. Yeah, so soccer is a fan. You know, look, I'll be honest. I, I, you know, look, I played as a kid. 
I wasn't super into sports. Uh, one of my best friends is actually Bulgarian, you know, and so for him, soccer, football is religion. And uh, maybe like 12 years ago, you know, maybe like three World Cups ago, four World Cups ago, a while back, he got me involved and, and got me watching it and seeing his passion, seeing his, just, again, it's a religion. I mean, I, you know, I grew up as an NFL fan, and uh, but once I saw the passion and once I really got into the game with him, it, it totally changed for me. And so that that made me a fan and, you know, watching, I mean, as a soccer fan, you watch some games at crazy hours of the night. I mean, you, you do what you have to do to, to consume it because for a lot of years in the past, we didn't really have a good domestic game to watch. I, you know, I think MLS has gotten better. You know, I personally have no ill will toward MLS, you know, but there's a lot of great international games. You have to figure out how to watch and buy these obscure channels. And, you know, that's, that's the plight of the soccer fan. Uh, as far as an owner, I, uh, you know, the, the team originally reached out to me about a sponsorship deal. So my companies do a lot of TV advertising, a lot of radio advertising. We're a very big sponsor. We do a lot of sports deals. Uh, we had just finished uh, the largest sponsorship deal in the history of the NBA G League. And so the Armada reached out to me and said, you know, hey, Robert, we want to put your brand on our jerseys. And as a part of that, I wanted to see the league, fi- you know, the league financials, the club financials. I wanted to understand what I was investing in, you know, because lower division soccer, lower division right. sports is a risk as a sponsor. And so we, we get into the conversations and it turns out the club is, is in bankruptcy. It's owned by the league. And so it just, at the end of the day, I got to take my passion for the game, my passion for advertising and marketing and my desire to sponsor. And it turned into me buying the club. In terms of uh, division zero, we have all this stuff coming up, but I want to just start out on your thoughts on the current state of professional uh, soccer here in the States. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, what what I think we have, and again, I'm I'm not an MLS hater. I think a lot of people try to paint me that way because I, I talk about a pro-rel and an alternate pyramid and whatever else. But the MLS does a good job at what they do. You know, they they are on track to be the NFL version of soccer in America. Uh, you know, that's that's what I call a scarcity mentality. They'll maybe have, I don't know what the final team count is. I mean, if I had to guess, they'll probably get up in the low 30s which is where NFL is, NBA is. I mean, that's, that's where you cap your league when you have what I call the scarcity mentality. So only certain cities are winners, all the other cities are losers, and you get to really inflate the values of your club because you create the scarcity and not everybody gets to play at the table. Mm-hmm. To me, soccer is different. Soccer is about inclusion. Soccer is about access. If you look at some of the poorest countries in the world are amazing at soccer, amazing at football. And and that's really what this sport is supposed to be about. And I personally believe that there is room in the U.S. sports system for both. I think the MLS can exist as a closed league, as a scarcity league, as a maximum of, you know, 30-something teams. But I also think you can have an open pyramid. I think you can have open access and inclusion to the beautiful game without impeding or hurting what MLS is trying to do. And, and that's, that's really where I find myself. I think the two can coexist, just like baseball can coexist with football, can coexist with NBA. I think both open soccer and closed soccer can coexist in this country. So I want to talk about the NESL quickly. You bought Armada FC. When you bought them, were you aware of the potential league sanctioning issues that were coming yeah, I mean, so look, we, we were provisionally sanctioned. I get that. 
you know, so again, put yourself in my shoes. I'm a business guy. I've been right. in a lot of boardrooms. I own some pretty large companies. I'm a fan of the sport, you know, and so when I, from the outside looking in, I say, well, what is, what is U.S. soccer looking for? You know, they want to, they want to grow the sport. They want to improve awareness of the sport. They want to improve access to the sport. Like, this is what all I believed. And so when I looked at it and said, okay, well, on paper, we only have eight clubs. We don't have 12. But on the flip side, most of the owners that are here now weren't here five years ago. And so if, if any of your listeners aren't familiar with the pro league standards, a new division two league only needs eight clubs. Uh, then once you, I think it's the five year mark, you have to have 12 clubs. And so the argument that the NASL made to us soccer was, look, none of the owners that were here more than five years ago are here today. Traffic is gone. All the old ownerships are gone. We are a new league. We may not have reincorporated. We may not be a new business, but we're basically a new league. All of our owners have been here less than five years. Please let us in with only eight teams, right? That's, that's the requirement for a league less than five years old. And that, that concept made sense to me as a business guy. You know, I can, see them, I can see them granting us that and letting us continue to play. And then on top of that, I look and say, well, you know, we're dumping tens of millions of dollars a year into the sport. We're expanding access. We're paying players. We're giving fans. We're running TV commercials and TV broadcasts. I really did not expect for U.S. soccer to take away the sanctioning. I, you know, I, I knew the risks. I knew on paper that we didn't meet the pro league standards, but I guess I didn't see the harm. You know, we, we never took any money from them. You know, we, ne- we didn't fail financially. The league as a whole paid its bills. I know there were a couple teams like the Strikers and whoever that maybe didn't do such a great job, but as the, the, the eight teams that went in there for sanctioning were all paying their bills, we were good stewards of the sport. We were expanding the sport. I honestly believe we would get sanctioning. I personally flew to New York and went to the meeting and presented our case along with, with Rocco and Rishi for us to, to continue to be sanctioned. So it, it, it blindsided me in the fact that there was no, in my mind, good reason to not sanction us. Again, I understand we didn't meet the rules on paper, but, but what was the harm? I mean, we, we were expanding the sport. We were doing our thing. So as a business guy, that didn't make sense to me, but I knew it was a risk. I knew we were provisionally sanctioned and I have no regrets. I would go back and do it all the exact same way because I'm here to protect professional soccer in the city of Jacksonville and make sure that our fans and our supporter group has access to the Armada. So outside of the paper, uh, paper requirements, do you think that was the only reason uh, why that the uh, NASL did not receive the uh, sanctioning? You know, honestly, uh, the, there were a lot of politics involved and that's really as far as I'll take it. I mean, there, there were clearly politics and I'm not going to try to, you know, guess at at what the root of those were. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I've now learned that there were more stern ultimatums given to the league before I got involved that I wasn't aware of. I mean, you know, I think it had been a rocky relationship for a long time. And, you know, so I think where, what maybe made sense, you know, business wise to me and, and to Rocco and Ricardo and other owners, I, you know, I can see where politically maybe somebody should have known it wasn't going to go our way, but none of us knew that, if that, if that makes sense. I had quick question regarding NESL. When this past February, they decided to not host any games or cancel this upcoming season. Was there a contingency plan ahead of that? Wow, I feel like I wrote that question and emailed it to you before we talked. Uh, I love it. Like, I love, this is my favorite question ever. 
so this this really is the the beginning and this is the the whole basis behind the division zero question right so a lot of people when i when i go on twitter and i talk about division zero and i have my you know my my division zero group coming together and, and looking at this it was never to form a league division zero was about a question and the question was if a league loses sanctioning can we continue to play and because when that moment came, you know, when, again, we, we went in as, as eight owners, uh, well, seven owners, and we were, we were ready to finance Detroit FC to come up and join us as the eighth team to meet the minimum eight. Uh, myself and other owners committed the funds to make it a reality for Detroit to come up. When, when, we, when we went in there, we, never, we didn't expect to not get sanctioned. We really didn't. And I know from the outside looking in, maybe we should have, but we really didn't. And so we didn't have a contingency plan. And so looking back, what I realized is if we had had a contingency plan, we would still be playing soccer because no one could stop us from kicking the ball. No one can stop us from renting our stadiums and selling our tickets and paying our players and kicking the ball. And so I believe if NASL had had the contingency plan, if we had sat down and said, you know what, if we don't get sanctioned, what do we do? And can we still play? And can we still take the pitch? I believe we probably would have come to a place I mean, maybe we would have. Who knows? You know, there, there are some unique situations. You know, Rocco, Rocco has his sponsorship with Emirates. Emirates is the premier sponsor in all of soccer. Look at the deal they just did with Arsenal. You know, huge. Uh, Ricardo Silva, he's suing for promotion and relegation in CAF. If he's not in Division 2 and he wins, where does he go? He doesn't go to Division 1. So there may have been some other obstacles. But at the core, I believe that if eight teams want to play soccer together, and they're willing to lock arms and say, you know what, we want to be sanctioned, we want to play within the pyramid, but if for whatever reason we ever lose that sanctioning, we will still kick the ball, we'll still show up and play soccer together, that makes it a stronger league. And that's what the whole Division Zero question is about. You did you did mention on the Pines After podcast that you weren't even sure Division Zero would even be a league. Was Division Zero more of an idea that's kind of shifted now into a potential uh, league? Yeah, I mean, I don't even, I still don't think it's a league. I mean, I'm still not there. Look, if, if all else fails, I will fund a league because I'm going to make sure the Armada have a place to play. Uh, Division Zero was always a question. It was an idea. It was a concept. That, so at the core, here's my belief. We put too much stock in the professional league standards. We put too much stock and reverence into Division One, Division Two, II, Division Three sanctioning from USSF. MLS is not Division One because USSF says they are. MLS is Division One because they have the most fans, the biggest stadiums, and the best players. And I give them props for that. <laughs> You know, beyond that, whether USL is Division II, NASL is Division II, Division Three, Detroit City is Division whatever, Zero or Four, whatever you want to call it, uh, Chattanooga. I mean, the divisional labels don't mean anything. And it really, the biggest thing I want for U.S. soccer is let's, let's take a step back and let's say, you know what, judge us on our quality of play. Judge us on our fan base. Judge us on our supporter groups. Don't judge us on our metropolitan area size and our owner's net worth because without promotion and relegation, it doesn't really matter what division I'm in. I can be in division seven and I can still build a stadium and sell it out and have great sponsorships and great players as long as I have quality teams to play against. 
And, and that really is what we have to come to terms with, in my mind, to take soccer to the next level, is you have MLS, and they are the major league, major league soccer. I don't question that title. Beyond that, though, division titles don't matter. And let's just dive into your uh, di- your Division Zero uh, uh, I- uh, idea. And whenever you talk about Division Zero, you're really you really focus on community. And it was one of those words that popped out at me when I was listening to a podcast when I've read uh, articles about Division Zero. Just community, community, community. Why do you think fans are so important uh, in terms of uh, uh, the success? of a team. I mean, man, what else is there, right? I mean, where, <laughs> where, would, where would MLS be without their supporter groups? Where would they be without their fans? Where would any soccer club across the planet be without their supporters groups and their fans? You know, right. it, it, look, look, look at England. You know, I, I'm an EPL fan. Every Saturday morning, I get up with my five-month-old daughter and I sit her on my lap and we watch EPL games. Uh, you know, England has a population roughly twice the size of Florida. And they have 100 pro teams. So by their math, we should be able to support somewhere in the 40 to 50 pro teams just in the state of Florida. We barely have that nationally. And then this is where soccer is different. It's not about scarcity. It's about abundance. And, and, and what I believe and why I believe soccer is such a great sport globally is because any community can come together. They can form a club. And if that club can show merit on the pitch, They can work their way up. They can win their way up. They can become something bigger. But the idea that we will deny communities access to a pro club because they don't have a millionaire with a 10 or 20 or $70 million net worth, depending on which division they're going for, to come in and write checks, to me is ludicrous. I get the need for financial responsibility, but that, that isn't reflected in an owner's net worth. The owner of the San Francisco Deltas had a huge net worth. He was one and done, folded after one year. Detroit City, no owner meets the net worth. Chattanooga, no owner meets the net worth. These guys are selling tickets. They're filling up stadiums. You know, look at the Detroit story. Like, this is one of my favorite in all of American soccer. Literally, their fans came out and helped them rebuild their stadium. They crowdfunded mm-hmm. their stadium. Yep. Would that have happened if, you, if you'd had a billionaire writing checks at the core of it? Would that have happened? Probably not. Is the community going to come out and fix a stadium and finance a stadium for a billionaire? No. Will they do it for their community? Yes. And that's why that's one of the most powerful clubs in this country. I believe they're the most successful club outside of MLS in all of America. And I will stand by that statement. And it's because the community made that club a reality, not someone with an arbitrary net worth. Robert, what about what, why do you think U.S. soccer has this issue when it comes to fan ownership? Where does that stem from? You know, I think, I think if you go back really far in time, you know, if you go back to the original NASL, you go back to the early days, that, you know, they, there were a lot of teams standing up. There were probably a lot of clubs forming and failing. I, mean, I, I honestly don't know. I mean, the, you know, part of me wants to believe that it really was originally founded in an idea of promoting the sport. But at this point, all it looks like is an attempt to exclude communities and exclude owners like, so I'm in, I'm in Chattanooga right now. I flew up here with my, with my group, my team. We're here for the, the soccer summit that Chattanooga FC is putting on. Chattanooga only has a population of about 600,000. So because they don't have the 750,000 population required by the PLS, if they go Division Two, 
they count against the proportion of large, you know, large areas to small areas, and they actually would hurt the league they joined. I think some of the PLS maybe were built for exclusion. You know, hey, let's make this exclusive. Let's keep small communities out. Let's force leagues to go into time zones across the country before they're ready. Let's make this a barrier to entry. And in my mind, soccer should not be about a barrier to entry. It's about a ball and a love for the game and a pitch and people who love the sport. No, yeah, absolutely. In terms uh, terms of barriers to entry, I mean, that's a basic economic principle. And that seems like soccer around the world, we see it as, okay, a team can build up, work their way up. But in in America, you're kind of just like trying to poke through a door that – that that isn't that isn't open in terms of division zero is promotion relegation uh, a big aspect of it or is that just uh, a a part of the big thing a part of the idea no it's it's the, the core belief so I, when i look at the promotion relegation problem i know a lot of people think we have to fix it from the top right and they, they think that mls would have to adopt promotion relegation I don't think that's the case. I mean, if, if you paint a picture, let's, let's look at the amateur landscape right now. There's between four and 500 amateur teams across the U.S. USASA, PDL, the, the state association leagues, there's almost 500 teams. Somewhere in there are 20 or 30 teams that are better than everyone else. And so they should be promoted because the best teams want to play the other best teams. They should be promoted. They should come up. They, they should have a, a league above the other leagues they can go into. And then out of those 20 or 30 teams, if 10 or 12 of them are better than everybody else, they should go up again. And, and if, if you look at it from that aspect, if you say, you know what, if we start with the bottom base, because, I mean, I, I have to believe, again, I, I wasn't there, I wasn't around, you know, 100 years ago or however long ago promotion and relegation started in the sport. I have to believe it started because there were all these teams and a number of them said, you know what? We're better than everybody else. We play better. We have better players. We have better coaching. We win more than everyone else does. Let's all move ourselves up a level and play each other. And then all of a sudden they wake up again and there's another level and they move up again and they move up again. And all of a sudden you have an organically built bottom up five or six tier pyramid. Now I'm not talking about what U.S. soccer calls it. I'm not talking about arbitrary divisional rankings based on ownership net worth. I'm talking about teams organizing themselves and a desire to play the other best teams when you're one of the best teams, and that creates a natural bubbling up, a natural rising of the cream to the top, and that's what ProRail is all about, and that's what, when I talk about Division Zero, that's my vision. If, if everyone can get in, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. If a community won't support the team, if, if they won't come out and do sponsorships, if the fans won't buy tickets, the team will just disappear. It happens every day in the amateur game right now. Every year we have NPSL teams that disappear, PDL teams that disappear, local state association teams that disappear. It's okay. It's part of business. It's part of the sport. It's part of the promotion and relegation system. Some people relegate themselves out of existence because they can't figure it out. But on the flip side, when you open it up, when you take away the false barriers of net worth and population size and time zone, and you let the best teams play the other best teams you will naturally form a pyramid of promotion and relegation 
Robert, regarding promotion and relegation, are you talking? You said you didn't want to like go through the division, say one, two, three. But I'm a little curious. How would this actually work out when you do have MLS at the top of this? Would MLS be included? Would the USL be included, or would this be separate? I think it's totally separate. You know, I think I think and I think just like the NBA and the NFL, you know, again, they're, they're playing different sports, but in reality, they're just sporting leagues that are doing different models. And, and I believe that the MLS is what it is. It's the NFL version of soccer. And I'm a fan of it. I think they put a pretty decent product on the field. I mean, I'm, I'm not an MLS hater. But that's not what I'm talking about with this promotion relegation, community-based soccer vision. So they can exist over there. And there are fans who are going to be drawn to that. And they'll sell their tickets and they'll do their thing. And they'll have their 30 cities or whatever they end up landing on in the end. That's totally different from a pyramid of four to 500 teams moving up and down. And, and so, look, if, if U.S. soccer owns Division 1, 2, and 3, let's call this Division A, B, C, and D. And it has nothing to do with the pro league standards, nothing to do with U.S. soccer's designations. It's about the best teams out of those 500. They go play in Division A, and they have great fan bases, and they have great players, and they know how to win games. And the next level down is Division B, Division C, Division D. Take the numbers out of it. Call it Division Zero. It's all about the actual quality of the product on the field and the quality of the fan experience. So it sounds like, because we actually did uh, interview uh, Peter Wilt of NISA, that you and Peter Wilt, your ideology is kind of uh, aligned align together. Uh, have you uh, spoken with Peter about uh, Division Zero and uh uh, Nisa, because I have uh, when I was listening to the Pines After uh, podcast uh, again, they did they did mention that um, you are kind of skeptical that they'll receive sanctioning. So, would you guys, I guess, if they don't receive uh, sanctioning, would you guys almost work together in that instance? Yeah. So look, I'm I'm a big fan of Peter. I've had a lot of conversations with Peter when when the NASL first you know had its issues. Peter was one of the first phone calls I made. I think his vision for NISA is beautiful. I think the biggest flaw in his vision is that it relies on the pro league standard. It, revives, it, re, it relies on USSF. You know, Peter has a, a vision for a Division Four. It doesn't exist right now. And from what I understand, U.S. soccer is not open to adding another division. They feel like one, two, and three are enough. And Division Three requires a $10 million net worth. So how would you ever have promotion and relegation? If a team like Chattanooga or Detroit that doesn't have the $10 million net worth wins your lower division, how do you promote them? How do you move them up? And so I feel like, again, I, I'm a fan of NISA. If NISA got sanctioned tomorrow, I would put the Armada in it in a heartbeat because it's an open league. At the core, they believe in promotion and relegation. If Peter can figure out a way to navigate the PLS to make it work, I haven't been able to figure it out, but I will defer to someone who's got a much greater history in the sport than I do. And Peter, I just, I've been at the table. I've sat at the boardroom with U.S. soccer. I've seen the willingness or unwillingness to give waivers. And I know they gave waivers for a lot of years, whatever. I'm talking about today's environment. If there was not already a Division Three, or if there was not a Division Three in existence, I think that would help Peter. But it looks like USL, and I mean, USL is going to have their Division Three next year. I don't see any chance that they're not going to. One of the things that was kind of told to us in, in our meetings was 
they only want there to be they want to be one division one, one division two, one division three. So while U.S. Soccer was willing to give NASL waivers when we were the sole division two, once there was another division two in USL, their appetite to give waivers is less. So if if USL comes in and they receive division three sanctioning and they don't need waivers then I believe USSF is much less likely to give NISA waivers for Division Three, And I, I am talking to every club across the country trying to open up in Division Three, Division Four. anybody trying to play a full-year pro, I put myself out there, we're talking. I just, I don't see that there are enough clubs to make it happen and get sanctioned without waivers. And the minute you ask for waivers, you leave yourself open for the bad news that we received at NASL. Robert, it sounds a lot like the issues here is with U.S. soccer, and specifically with the sanctionings and all that. And you're trying to create something outside of that bubble. But what do you tell players and coaches with, say, FIFA sanctioning, where, you know, getting called up? How would this work with player transaction with that? How would you be able to attract players to your league when it's not a sanctioned league? So, so we when, when I say unsanctioned, I mean outside of Division One, Division Two, II, Division Three, outside of the PLS. You know, we 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 looked at the absolute nuclear option of being completely unsanctioned, and while it's doable, it's not pretty. And so, to me, the sweet spot exists as an independent member of the federation, as a league sanctioned under USASA. So you still have the protections of FIFA. You're still part of the FIFA family. You're just not D1, D2, D3. You're out here doing your own thing, uh, much like where the NPSL and the PDL and, and UPSL is. So it's not entirely out of the picture. It's just out of the the structure of MLS, USL, and I guess what it would have been NESL. But what about what do you? What's your take on just the U.S. Soccer Federation as a whole? Do you like the trend we're going in? Obviously, we just elected a new president, Carlos Quadero. So look, I mean, I, you know, obviously I, I care about one small piece and that is the, the pro leagues, right? That's, that's where my piece, you know, that, that's where my business inherently intersects with them. There's a lot more to what they do. You know, the U S soccer federation handles the, the youth game, the adult game. They have the world cup bid right now. And in their mind on the pro game side, they have a thriving ecosystem. I mean, I, I believe, and I've had a lot of meetings with people around U S soccer they don't see a problem with the closed league, you know, and, and in some regards, I can see that, you know, the NFL is very successful. The NBA is very successful just because the rest of the world has promotion and relegation. U S soccer says, well, we're American. We can be different. I personally disagree with that philosophy, but that is the current active philosophy at USSF. So if you ask them, they're doing great. They've got MLS as D one. They've got USL as D two. They're about to have USL as D three. Those leagues are, in their mind, financially stable. They have a number of teams. There's no promotion or relegation. But in American sports, anywhere else, there's no promotion or relegation. So I think fundamentally that's where I disagree with U.S. soccer. You know, I believe we need to look more like the rest of the world. They believe we need to look more like the NFL or the NBA. But they're, they're staying true to that belief. Absolutely, Robert. And I just want to talk about the Armada and you will begin playing in the Sunshine Conference of the MPSL. What are your thoughts on playing in the MPSL? Yeah, I mean, so I, you know, look, I, I think the quality in the MPSL is is higher than a lot of people give it credit for. 
I mean, when you think about the best collegiate players playing in, in the NPSL, it's, it's a good quality of play. The downside is there's just not enough games, you know, and that's why I'm in Chattanooga right now. There are 20 teams in Chattanooga right now coming together to try to figure out how we go longer season. How do we go on the 32-game season, a longer season, without being part of the, the, the D1, D2, D3 pyramid? And that's what we're hoping to solve for in Chattanooga with this meeting. If the NPSL played 32 games, I would be happy, you know, and we would, we would go rock our 32 games and we would sell a lot of tickets and we would sign our sponsorships and we would sign great players. And my hope would be that of the hundred so NPSL teams that eventually the top 10 or top 12 or top 15 of us would move up a level and we would create a new league, a new division, a new grouping underside NPSL where we play each other because we're the best of the best the best of the Sunshine Conference, the best of the Southeast Conference, the best of everyone across the country, we all come together and we play each other. That's how promotion and relegation start. So I'm, I'm happy to be in the MPSL. I believe it has a huge trajectory going forward. I believe that if there's ever a chance for promotion and relegation in America, it starts at this level. It starts under USASA, and it's about teams moving up, not trying to force MLS teams to move down. So... Uh, I just want to clarify. You're saying uh, potentially um, that you would like to see the main top ten or twelve teams move up and make their own league to play at, uh, to basically play against each other and kind of keep doing that throughout. Or am I misunderstanding that? No, that's it. That's absolutely it. I mean, if you take the thriving amateur pyramid and let's, I mean, again, let, let's get super hypothetical and super blue sky. If, if you take the NPSL and the UPSL and all of the state-sanctioned leagues and we figure out a way to say, all right, the best teams from all those leagues, the best 12 teams are going to move up and they're going to play each other in some new thing. And I, I don't even want to call it a league necessarily. I mean, it would obviously be a league. It may be an extension of those existing leagues, whatever it is. The best teams move up and they play each other. And then after a while, more teams move up. And then teams move up from that level. And again, this is how promotion and relegation starts. The best teams move up and move up and move up. And that's what I want to see happen. And that's what I'm here trying to solve for. And the biggest barrier to that happening is travel costs. You know, and that's mm. where if, if I can help alleviate those travel costs in the early days. You know, let's say I say, you know what, look, let's go find the best 10 teams across all of amateur soccer and move them up and I'll personally pay for all their travel. All of a sudden, we have a league that's playing at a higher level. That's how promotion and relegation starts. What about the... Well, promotion and relegation is obviously the relegation part. You talked a lot about moving up. Would there be a... Uh, would clubs move back down and you replace it with the better teams of that... I guess, you know, the separation between, I guess, we what we call it two leagues. But is there the up and down aspect? I know you talked a lot about going up. Yeah, absolutely. So once once you've fully seeded that top league, so the first year everybody has to move up. And maybe maybe it's the first two or three years everyone moves up. But eventually when you have critical mass at that higher level, now you've got to move teams up and down. And so again, if you lose, you go back to the league you started in. You know, So if a, if a team moves up to this higher league and, and after two or three years when we start the promotion and relegation piece, they move back down, they move back down. Uh, because they came into the game at the lower level, because that's the other piece. You can't enter at the higher pyramid. You can't enter at the top level. You have to enter a level below and then move your way up. So you know what you came in for. You know what you signed up for. If you lose and you find yourself at the bottom of the table, 
you move down. One of the concepts I'm a big fan of is in the end, there's a promotion and relegation tournament. So instead of just the, the best three or four teams moving up and the worst three or four teams moving down, let's have a tournament where the best three or four teams from the lower division play the worst three or four teams from the higher division, and then the winners of that tournament move up and the losers of that tournament move down. Because if you're still better than the lower division teams, you shouldn't get relegated. You should move your way back up. So that's, that's my little twist on you know, the traditional EPL promotion and relegation. Robert, I want to go back to when you talked about traveling uh, costs. The MPSL does it, but what are your thoughts on regionalization and making regional leagues throughout? Yeah, I think eventually that that would be great. But right now there are not there aren't eight teams in any given region of the country that can make this a reality. I mean, again, I'm I'm out there, I'm talking to everybody, I'm I'm meeting with teams constantly. I'm really trying to understand where we are as a as a country in soccer outside of MLS and, and USL. And and there just aren't. I mean, if, if you break the country into maybe five regions, at eight teams a region, you need 40 teams. There are not 40 teams currently ready to move up and play a full year and travel outside of their immediate geography. So I think I think we try to get there. I think that's the ultimate goal, but that that's a further stretch from where we are today. Now, Robert, I, what is the biggest issue facing club soccer? Is it the financial aspect? Is it just cultural aspect? Is it you know, U.S. soccer, the federation as a whole. In your eyes, what is the, the biggest obstacle? I, I think in a lot of ways it's this self-limiting belief. You know, it's this, it's this categorization that gets passed down that says, well, you're an amateur team. You, you fit in this hole right here. You can't do more than that. We have to cast that off. We have to understand that if, if you're a club like Detroit City or Chattanooga or, you know, the New Orleans Gestures, Atlanta, Atlantic City FC, there's some great clubs out there doing amazing things at the amateur level. They can be more and they just have to believe in themselves and, a will- and have that willingness to be more. And that's, that's what's going to spark this next revolution. I mean, it's just understanding that you don't get to move up because U.S. soccer says you're a new division. You move up because you've achieved a level of success on the field and in the front office that lets you move up. Robert, I wanted to ask you about your recent announcement that you made regarding the Armada, talking about building a new stadium. And when you talked about stadium, again, that podcast I keep referencing, we'll link that somewhere. Um, you talked about modular stadiums. Is that the plan you have for this new Armada stadium? Yeah, so I'm, I'm personally a fan of what I'll call a festival-style stadium. You know, look, I'm not trying to build an NFL-looking stadium. I'm not trying to build a MLS-looking stadium. You know, I, I think there are some very efficient ways to use modular parts when it comes to bleachers and tip-down seating. I think a festival-style atmosphere when it comes to concessions. You know, you picture guys grilling hot dogs and hamburgers under tents, you know, for concessions. I mean... We, we, again, we, we try to make this thing so formal. Like, we want to go enjoy the game. We want to have a super high-quality pitch. But, you know, if I've got a tent with kegs in it pouring beer and a tent with guys grilling hot dogs and hamburgers, how is that not adequate concessions? You know, but you create such a different atmosphere. But the key is the club needs to own the land. Because when the club owns the land, the club makes the rules. Now the supporter section can look like whatever it wants to look like. Banners can be hung. Smoke can be popped. The supporters can have their parades. They can really own that area and make it their own. 
And so I'm, I would rather see a less fancy stadium owned by the club that looks like it reflects that club than a really fancy NFL stadium or soccer-specific stadium that's not the club's. So they just get to go in there for a couple hours a week and be a tenant, and maybe they can't pop smoke and they can't have their parade and they can't have their drums and they can't hang banners. That's not what soccer is about. It's about engaging the community. So I would rather see that festival-style stadium owned by the club and really make it about the community and the team and the fans. Robert, before we let you go, I just wanted to ask you, what are your expectations for this upcoming season as you're going to begin play in the NPSL on April 29th for the Armada? Yeah, you know, so I'm excited. I, you know, I'm, I'm excited about our fans coming out. Our, you know, our supporter groups are excited that we're going to get back on the pitch. We're late. You know, if the NASL had, had stayed alive, we'd already be kicking the ball by now. Mm-hmm. So we're going we're gonna to hit the pitch late. Our fans have remained engaged. Our supporter group has remained engaged. We opened a brick-and-mortar store earlier this year. We've been doing great merchandise sales out of there. The community is behind us. You know, I, I think we're going to have a really quality uh, play on the pitch. We've kept some of our pro players. We've brought in amateur players. It's, uh, it, it's exciting. You know, I, I'm excited to see what this club does. Coach Lowry is an amazing tactician. He's an artist in my mind when it comes to the game. I just I, I can't wait for the day when I'm on these podcasts to talk about soccer instead of talking about the business of soccer. But right. I understand where we are right now. And until we solve the business of soccer – we can't focus on the game and I'm willing to slug through the next however many years of the business of soccer because I am ready for that end result where it's all about the game. And this is our final question, Robert. This is actually thanks to our uh, sponsorship away days. Use promo code uncle Sam for 15% off your purchase. Now, Robert, I want to ask you, what is your favorite lower league kit outside the armadas? Favorite lower league kit. Uh, I'm gonna go with Low Country United in the MPS or in the UPSL. Okay. What, what what's 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 so uh, uh, what do you like about their kit? Uh, you know, I, I love it. I, they got the bridge, the colors. It's just they they really did a nice job. That one strikes me. Uh, it's it's my favorite. You know, who who's to say why we like a new piece of art? That one jumps out at me. Well, Robert, we really appreciate it. Definitely uh, a fascinating take on where we stand with U.S. soccer. Hope to have you back on and enjoy your enjoy the good luck this upcoming season. All right, guys, thanks a lot. Thank you, Robert. Division Zero, what a, what a fascinating idea by Jacksonville Armada owner Robert Palmer. We thank him for joining us on the show. Steven, I wanted to ask you real quick, what, what do you think of Division Zero after listening to that interview? It, it poses – the thing – it's something he alluded to. I think Division Zero is a question. It, it's kind of an idea out there floating. But he, he makes a very important point, and we, we – 
think about this show, Armand, how we've taken it and we've talked so much of the business aspect of soccer. How often do we actually talk about game day tactics or just what's going on on the field? You you don't talk about ownership in the other major sports teams as often as you do with U.S. soccer. No, that's that's right. No, that's fair. Um, in, in, in terms of what I think this is, this seems like almost like a backup plan. Yeah. Do you, if you get what I'm trying to say like that? He's no, saying, it is It, it is it a could, backup plan. Because think about it. I mean, what 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 did he say on the on the pod? He said if Nisa's created and received sanctioning, he would put he would put them straight up in the league. He would put no, them I mean, straight up in the league. I think the thing is he's getting people to talk. He's trying to get people to come to the table, and he's looking at what's the best option for the Armada. I, one thing you can tell is he's very passionate, and I think that that is I don't know some of the people we've spoken to. It, or, you know, on and off the record, on the show, behind the scenes. You, some of them seem rather, you know, either disappointed or not enthusiastic. But Robert is very enthusiastic about what he's doing. And I think that's going to carry a lot of momentum because if you're a fan of the Armada or if you're a fan of one of these lower division teams, you look at him and be like, well, that's my owner. I, I, I can support what he's doing because it seems like he's trying – uh, you know, he's looking at a million different possibilities. Let me tell you something. You're spot on, Steven, in terms of that. He's very passionate, and you can tell why he's, how he's so passionate when he mentioned Detroit City. I mean, not a lot of people know about Detroit City and how how their supporters help uh, renovate, I think it's Keywar Stadium, how they are basically like a fan-owned club, how they're, they're basically almost like a little rebellion from the USSF. I think mm. Detroit City almost embodies the idea of Division Zero. It's, he, if you look at Detroit City, it's exactly what Robert Palmer wants. If you can get like 20 of those, I think he would cry. Yeah, Enjoy. I mean, for Robert, it's really about what you see in the Bundesliga with that 50 plus one rule. He really wants the community to own the club. You don't see that. That's The thing is... Yeah, I, I don't know if he really touched on it, but I, I think you could read him between the lines. It's, a lot of U.S. soccer and what MLS and US Feder- the U.S. Soccer Federation isn't constructed on what other leagues have done around the world. It's constructed on American sports leagues like the NFL or the NBA where you do have uh, a single owner where the league dominates everything. And it's not – besides for the Green Bay Packers, there's not much of a fan ownership. There is almost none. The fans don't really have a say. But meanwhile, in Europe and other places, the fans have a lot more say when it comes to club decisions. No, I agree. But we've been seeing a little bit of a trend where we've seen a lot, a little bit of some amateur clubs giving the fans a voice. My question to you, Stephen, is is supporter right now in this day and age, do you think a supporter's uh, own team is sustainable? Uh, I, I think depending it, – it depends on the market. It really, truly depends on the market. I think for a lower league, it makes sense. But it also depends. It makes sense. No, but in the sense of the market, I think if you get a small team with a stadium, about 10,000 people, a nice stadium where it's really community and and they play the game and the, the, the venue is packed and it's loud and you can really, you know, there's a, a sense of pride and joy, I think it is sustainable. I mean, you and I have personally talked about investing in clubs. 
You and I yeah. have. I will put that yeah. on the record. You and I have had conversations about putting money where our mouths are. Yeah, one hundred percent. So I mean, we're still we're still looking into it too. So I mean, yeah, I mean, we haven't reached out. If anybody wants to reach out and help us out, we definitely like to add, you know, more people to our board. But it's it, we've talked about it because it's a different dynamic. I I don't know. It, to me, it all comes down to soccer culture, and we still don't have a true soccer culture. We have passionate fans, but it, across the country, there's a divide between the MLS teams and the lower division teams like it's huge and Armand the best example I have right now is with Michael DeLue of the Chicago Fire where he said the fans in Chicago go out for go to the game for a night out it's just that there is no expectation of you have to win or you know we're gonna go home pissed or we're gonna boo the crap out of you I mean look the best example with that is just look what a couple days ago with the CONCACAF Champions League Look how much more that meant to fans and players. I think his claim is a little bit of uh, BS, though. I I don't think I do think teams have fans that are. I mean, a lot a lot of fans in across the world will go out to watch the, to watch their team play just for a night out. I don't see an issue with that. There no, should no, be but an that, issue with that. The point of being a night out is that it doesn't matter what the result is. In Europe, the result matters. That's but, the difference. Here, but, he, but I mean, here's the thing. I mean, even if the result matters, people still go to a game for a night out. Yeah, but you go I mean, out to the game. It, it, I, I, I understand what he's saying. But it, it's just very hard to convey it. It's, it's the premise that the game matters more than just. Yeah, I know. What he's, saying. He's, say, he's saying he's saying that like basically people don't care about a team. They just come because there's something to do. Well, it, it's that's, like baseball. That's what, it, that's what it sounds. That's what it sounds like he's saying. Like, well, yeah, you're like baseball. I'm not gonna go watch baseball for fun. I don't fault religiously, but I'm gonna go sit there and watch a game to go out one night. But it's also the fact that each game, you could screw around for a couple of games, and that's it. There's no at the end of the season, Chicago Fire is still gonna be there. They're still gonna have money in the bank to go sign some player. It's not like oh, we finished tenth in the Premier League and we we're expected to finish sixth. Now we're losing money. Crap. What are we going to do? You know, or, oh my God, we're in the you know relegation battle. It's the expectation of fans on the club isn't the same as it is in other parts of the world. And I think that's the biggest issue. I think Robert, to some degree, realizes that the fans don't have enough say. Therefore, there's not expectations for these clubs to do better or to realize there's more possibilities in U.S. soccer. I mean, it's the it's the basic idea, it's the basic mentality of American sports, you know? No, it it's is not. It's not it, Amer- American sports. A completely different dynamic uh, compared to uh, uh, the Premier League or or, or stuff like that. It, but it, even the it, second, just uh, even Bund- in, in League Two or the second Bundesliga or you know other parts of the world. But I mean, you can find. I mean. My my thing is I just I I don't I don't, I don't agree with that statement because I think it's too that's too harsh on a fan. I don't think I don't think that I don't think that's true. I think there's plenty, if not many, even not the majority of fans that are there that give a shit week in week out, and they uh, don't go out just for a, they they don't go out just for a night out. 
maybe we don't see that in the markets that we are respectively in, but I think there are. I think there's plenty. I, I think, think there's, yeah, yeah, I think, okay. I think there's more. I think it's the majority almost. I don't, I see, think, I don't think it's a majority. I think, it, I think it's, it's a majority. it's a selection of fans that are there week in and week out. But there's a selection of fans that just do show up to Fortnite out, watch the game, say they went to Chicago Fire game, return home, and not really care of the result. Oh, it was a good I, game, you know. Think, oh, they I, lost. I think you're underestimating the uh, the uh, the amount of uh, like hardcore fans that they are in MLS. But I mean, hey. That's, yeah, I mean, that's, that's how like it is, I man. said, I think it's also dependent on because we're from Dallas. Yeah. So I mean, if we, we, I, I mean, we, we, we see it in the markets that we're in, but I, I do think it's a majority almost. No, absolutely. I think it's a it's a fascinating conversation that will continue, I think, until we're dead, Armand, to be honest. Uh, listeners, go to awaydaysfootball.com and receive 15% off your purchase at checkout using promo code UNCLESAM. They have a $25 jersey. Highly recommend going to buy one. Uh, our producer, our assistant producer, Jake Watroba, actually bought one. And we're going to release the video soon on what jersey he got. He was absolutely dumbfounded. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's an awesome video because he has absolutely no, no idea. idea what he actually got. And he, he, he told us afterwards what he got, and it was not that. <laughs> it's awesome. Follow us on Twitter, Unc Sam Soccer Pod. Steven Jodder and Armand Kafai will be back with another episode next week. It's a great time to get a great deal on a new car when you get approved for an auto loan from PenFed. Our powered by True Car rates are as low as 1.39% APR on new vehicles. Finance for a longer term to lower your monthly bill, plus take up to 60 days to schedule your first payment. Join PenFed, and together, we'll keep you moving forward. Anyone can apply. Visit PenFed.org auto or call 1-800-247-5626. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA. The available AKG 36-speaker sound system in the Cadillac Escalade provides 360-degree sound, so you hear studio sound on the road. The 2021 Cadillac Escalade. Never stop arriving.